Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Well, we're back here at the start of a very big week here in uh, Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Welcome to Political Rewind. It's debate week in Atlanta. Wednesday night, the Democratic 10 Democratic candidates for president will take to the debate stage at Tyler Perry Studios uh, and in their fifth debate. And uh, there is all sorts of activity going on around the city uh, in advance of that event. We're going to talk about that on the show today with... Jim Galloway, lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's with us, as he always is, on Mondays and Fridays. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper. And, of course, he oversees the uh, Political Insider blog at AJC.com. You and your team, everybody's going to be really busy like they are at our place this week. Well, we've got – look, we've got uh, Hillary Clinton, Pete Buttigieg, and and Klobuchar in – Just today. Just today. (laughs) And then we've got – I know we've got Obama on the back end, and then we've got – in the middle, we've got this huge debate on on the south side. Yeah. And uh, joining us by telephone is your colleague – uh, the newest addition to the political team at the AJC, Tia Mitchell, who is now going to be heading up to Washington, where she'll be reporting. Uh, Tamar Hellerman heads down this way. Tia, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the first time for Political Rewind. Thanks for being with us on the phone. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Also in the studio today uh, is uh, State Senator uh, Jen Jordan. She is, of course, uh, a, uh, a a fierce fierce Democratic activist within the state Senate and also in civic events. You know, if we get a chance a little later on, Jen, we probably should ask you to update us on sterigenics, which has really been one of your biggest issues. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you uh, yeah. back with us. Are you feeling a little more powerful? You know, being in the minority as you are at the legislature, you know, you've got a Republican governor, Republican Senate, Republican... This week, we've got all these Democrats here. Does it make you feel a little stronger? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's, we should get, we've got some news happening in real time. Jim Galloway, um, or Leo Smith. Did I not introduce you, Leo? No, I'm just hanging out. See, uh, Leo Smith. <laughs> Leo Smith. Uh, you know, you showed up early today, so I just have been thinking we introduced you a long time ago. Leo He's part Smith of the GPTP Leo team. is the former outreach director for the state Republican Party, uh, very involved in trying to attract African Americans to the party. Now is an independent political strategist, but you continue the work that you've been doing to try to uh, turn more and more African Americans to the Republican Party. That's correct. Uh, my group, EFG Strategies and Engage Futures, are continually doing work building Republican infrastructure. All right. I, I apologize. I, I really did think I'd introduced you. Um, all right, Galloway, we do have some really uh, good breaking news. It's happening in real time. We know that at 5 o'clock today, Governor Kemp officially ends the uh, time period when you can apply for the U.S. Senate. So there's only about three hours left. But We've had a couple of last-minute people apply for the job, one of whom Greg Bluestein just tweeted out about just a couple of minutes ago. She's been rumored to be someone interested in the race, and now she's thrown her head that's, in that's the That's right. Uh, Kelly Loeffler, she's, the, uh, she, uh, she's co-owner of uh, the Atlanta Dream WNBA team in Atlanta. Uh, her husband... Uh, I, I think uh, owns uh, what owns the New, owns York, the New York, York Stock, Stock Exchange. Exchange. That's little, all. Little thing you called know, the just, New York Stock Exchange. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, she can self fund, which could be important uh, when you're running uh, when you have to run a 2020 race and then followed immediately by a 2022 race. She would appear to fit the profile of a of of of, of a, a more Isaacson esque uh, candidate uh, and. Uh, she, uh, although she lives in in uh, Buckhead, I'm sure she would she would uh, she would be attractive to suburban women who uh, Republicans desperately need. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, as the show goes on. Leo, you also told me uh, that um, he's been he too has been rumored as somebody who wanted to apply for this job, and and to the best of my knowledge, just did it in the last 24 hours or so, unless I'm wrong. 
Harold Melton, Chief Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, an African-American, highly respected around this state, uh, and he's now formally in the race, yes? Yes, a very affable Arbonne graduate and Chief Justice who's worked with the Purdue um, team, Sonny Purdue, as one of his uh, legal advisors back when he was governor, uh, has now, as of Friday, I understand, um, put in his application. I understand that he had to be courted a little bit and that uh, there was actually some uh, wrangling had to be done by the Purdue's to get him to be willing to do it because he's never really run for office. He's never had opposition. Right. right. Uh, and then we have Alan Poole who's the head of uh, Georgia's Highway Safety Program uh, and very close to Governor Kemp, and Rob, uh, Robin Crittenden, uh, the the former acting secretary of state. And, and both of those are, are of course, African-American. So you I think these I think these last the, these last appoint uh, these last submissions uh, really say something about what the governor is looking for. Yeah, um, Jen Jordan, we do not know when Governor Kemp is going to announce his choice. Cody Hall was on the show on Friday. We tried to, to we tried to beat it out of him. He left here bruised, but without giving us any information at all. But do you imagine uh, your name has been mentioned uh, here and there for uh, maybe being a Democrat running for that seat number two, the open seat? Do you imagine that once the governor makes his selection, we'll start seeing Democrats, whether you decide to jump in or not, will will they suddenly come uh, out of the woodwork and run for this seat? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the objective at the end of the day is for Democrats to capture this seat, right? And so how do you know who best to do that unless you know exactly who you're running against? And um, so, you know, amazingly, Democrats have kind of been kind of stepping in line and, and, and just really trying to figure out what makes sense. And, and I think they've got a bench ready to go. And it's probably going to depend on exactly who um, Brian Kemp picks. You know, it's interesting, Tia, you will, of course, uh, be in Washington and you will cover whoever it is who takes Johnny's place uh, in, in the first uh, session of January of next year. And what's interesting to me, Tia, is Given the Republican Party's overall makeup being largely white males uh, and skewing older, Brian Kemp really has a very wide and diverse group of people that he can choose from, doesn't he? Yes, very much so. And you're right. The current, especially in the GOP caucus, there are very few women and there's only one black Republican as of right now. Who's leading? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So um, it will be interesting if Governor Kemp, you know, chooses to pick someone who is either a woman or a minority who will, you know, by virtue of that alone, will automatically become even more high profile in national politics. Um, but I think, you know, people, it'll be interesting because so much has been said about Representative Collins being kind of the front runner and the the Trump guy. And so that's still compelling. But, uh, but you know, he would be another white male um, serving in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, and, Jim, why don't we continue? I mean, we're going to talk a lot about the Democratic activity around the debate. But, but this is an important moment to, to talk about uh, uh, other things that are happening politically. Um, you made a really interesting point in your uh, column uh, in, in the uh, Insider about the fact that we now have had a second governor's seat uh, where Trump worked hard for the Republican candidate and lost uh, to in both of them, first Kentucky, then Louisiana, both still in the control, both in the control of Democrats largely because suburban women turned out for the Democrats. In Louisiana, Trump made two visits, had two rallies, and three. still three, three total, two in the last week or right. so mm-hmm. of the race. And this is something you point out that Governor Kemp's got to be thinking about 
you right. would imagine. Uh, oh, right, right. And, 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 and let's toss in Virginia here. because yeah, right. because The legislature, the, 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 yeah, the, the assembly. The, their assembly went, went, went Democratic, too. I mean, you had, you, and with the Kentucky, you had Lexi- uh, suburbs of Lexington and Cincinnati uh, go Democrat. In, uh, in Virginia, it was Alexandria and, and Richmond, of all places. And now, you've, uh, now you had uh, uh, Baton Rouge and, uh, and, and places north. I mean, solid Republican territory. Ter- Territory up north. I first of all, Jen, we have to say we love to hear Galloway use that uh, pronunciation. Baton, Baton Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> He's such a Cajun at heart. Uh, he really is. But but he makes a very important point. I mean, you know, Republicans, your colleagues across the aisle in the legislature have got to be more nervous than even after 2018 about what might happen in a Republican races across the state. Look, I think that's why you see Republicans Republicans kind of dipping their toe into the pool of identity politics with respect to this this Kemp selection. I mean, we've never seen such kind of a a diverse group of people kind of presented to a Republican governor in terms of um, a pick like this. So the question is, what is he going to do? And I think at the end of the day, um, and and, um, Leo was talking about this earlier, um, to us off air in terms of Metro Atlanta is probably Republicans are probably going to lose that anyway, if you're thinking about the pick. But so is the question about losing less, right? Are we just talking about trying to bring those lines a little bit closer um, and then just double down in the rural areas? And, and I guess we'll see. Yeah, you know, I, this one in Louisiana is different than the Kentucky one, in my opinion. I think that Matt Bevan just presented a challenge as, you know, he wasn't likable even amongst Republicans. Um, However, this race down in Louisiana with the 50 percent turnout, um, which was impressive in a non-Obama type uh, um, candidate, and the black turnout down in Louisiana was impressive, which says to me that the black vote this time is mobilized against Trump in the same way Doug Jones, you know, acquired that vote in Alabama of the black vote. There seems to be some stickiness happening with um, the infrastructure being developed for black votes amongst Democrats. That's going to be a challenge for Republicans. So I guess the black voices for Trump didn't come too soon. Yeah. And, and I don't know if Tia would, would agree with me. But uh, and also also in, in this morning's uh, jolt, I kind of pointed to uh, Eric Erickson's. Yeah, that uh, was fascinating. That. And, and, and he, he makes an interesting distinction that that in, in both Kentucky uh, uh Kentucky situation and Louisiana, uh, Republicans won all the other races. You know, it was the one that was most identified with Trump uh, that that lost, which means you have some Republicans who are who are who who are are identifying the most Trump-like and re- rejecting them. Tia, it was the first time, and and Erickson, of course, has been off and on about Trump, although lately he's been definitely in the Trump camp. But it was the first time we've thought about a Republican Party perhaps standing separate from President Trump. This notion that Republicans can continue to win in states like Kentucky and Louisiana, it's just the candidates aligned with the president. And so this notion that maybe there is a Republican Party sort of and a Trump version of the Republican Party, if that grows, it could be really fascinating to watch next year. Right. I agree that it's clear that candidates aligned with Trump, you know, it's hurting in some states. It it doesn't seem to be helping as much as maybe it did, uh, you know, earlier in Trump's administration. I do think also that, you know, the Republican Party, I wonder how, you know, for currently most of the GOP delegation in the U.S. and in the U.S. House, for the most part, they're still not turning on Trump. They might not be, you know, David Perdue level and Representative Collins level, you know, at Trump with with Trump at sporting events, but they haven't really turned on him either. They're not distancing themselves from him either. But I wonder if that's going to start to change as some people worry about, you know, even the perception of being aligned with the president. Yeah. They start worrying that could hurt them at the point. Or whether, whether, regardless of that, whether, Jen, Republicans stop inviting Trump to come hold rallies mm-hmm. uh, ahead of the 2020 election. You know, one of the stories told about Louisiana is that 
Trump was not given accurate and honest polling data about what was happening in that governor's race. Instead, he was being led to believe he really could change the outcome of the race. And because he loves being in front of rallies like that, he made a wrongheaded decision to spend an awful lot of time down there. Well, purportedly, that's what happened in Kentucky, too. He was being fed kind of cooked numbers to some extent. But look, I think what we're seeing is a little bit of a a crossing of the Rubicon in some ways, where it used to be that if if, in what everybody feared was Trump coming into a state and giving his stamp of approval to a candidate, kind of the Cagle versus Kemp matchup, right? As soon as that tweet went out, everybody said, all right, the game's over. Trump sending a tweet supporting Kemp. Supporting Kemp. And now it's almost like we've got the opposite because the negative partisanship has gotten so intense with respect to anti-Trump. And then the people who are Trump supporters may, you know, that may be depressed just a little bit that the negative partisanship is actually what's carrying the day. And, and, you know, I'm going to say a little bit not too not so fast, my friend, on this. I think that Trump and even in this case in Louisiana, um, you know, the Republican candidate was polling around 27 percent and then he jumped up to about you know 49. So Trump does help a candidate with no brand, no real big, you know, panache get someplace. I mean, so I think, you know, you have to be careful because if you're Doug Collins and you're, you're running and everybody knows who Doug Collins is, he's developed his own charisma and leadership. Bevin had a negative brand. And then this, you know, the can, what's the guy's okay. name down in Louisiana? I mean, I don't even okay. know. John Bill. Right. I mean, so, you know, he's not well known. But I do want to point out that just a couple of minutes ago, you told us how surprising it was that we had 50% turnout and especially strong turnout among African-Americans. That's real. Okay. So, <laughs> so the, obviously the Trump effect works both ways. All right. Hey, so we got a lot happening in presidential politics. Um, let me start with you on this, Jen. And then, Tia, I want to get you in on this. Um, Pete Buttigieg will be here later this afternoon. I find it fascinating that just a week after President Trump a week or so, came into town to court African-American voters with his big rally, or I think big is probably the wrong word, Leo, with his 300-person or so rally at the World Congress Center uh, trying to attract African-American voters. Buttigieg now, Jen, comes in here. He's sailing on the breezes of having... Uh, a CNN poll that shows him with an enormous leap in Iowa. He's gone up 16 points. He now leads Elizabeth Warren. He leads Joe Biden by six points, five points, whatever. He comes in here with a lot of wind in his sails, and now he, too, is trying to confront this issue of white voters, white caucus goers in Iowa, white voters in New Hampshire. Then you got to make the turn to New Hampshire. So this afternoon... He's holding his event with African-Americans at Morehouse, trying to energize them. Interesting. Yeah, well, I think it comes on the heels, too, of him um, rolling out his affordable college plan. Yes. Which specifically does have a component with respect to HBCUs. So it's one of those things where... Look, he is surging in Iowa. And I think even if we look at kind of all the polls put together and get the average, I mean, I think Warren's at 20 and he's at 19. I mean, he's in second place with respect to that. But because of that, now he's going to have to look a little bit further down the road. And I think he was putting all of his energy into just making it through Iowa and then New Hampshire. But listen, he's got to start paying attention to the rest of the country. And well, I would just it was Leo had the last uh, last turn at Dempin dampening expectations here. I would remind everyone that maybe four years ago, I think, wasn't Terman Kane in the lead? Uh, he was, yes, he was. And 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 uh, I think we and are And by getting... the way, in the election before that, Rudolph Giuliani was uh, uh, way out front. <laughs> exactly. So I would, there's going to be a certain amount of churning uh, in the in the 70-plus days before we get to the caucuses in Iowa. Okay, okay, but then let's focus on Buttigieg with this very ambitious and dramatic, I think, Tia, he's talking about investing $500, new dollars, in making college more affordable for uh, working-class, middle-income families. He essentially is talking about expanding the federal Pell Grant program and uh, wants to increase the amount that each 
student could receive. I think right now they each student it's about five thousand or so dollars that a student can receive with financial who has financial needs. So you know it's going to be interesting Tia to say if that will in fact have some impact on uh, his uh, ability to reach into the African American community. How, how do you see that, Tia? I, I see that his plan has good stuff in it as far as resonating with working class families across the board. Of course, um, African Americans specifically is is the target audience for his event later today. But across the board, you know, you mentioned five hundred billion dollars into college affordability, including, you know, like you said, in increasing Pell Grants mm-hmm. and things like that. Also funding specifically for historically black colleges yeah, and 50 universities. Billion dollars. That's $50 billion, as well as extending eligibility to students, um, those uh, DREAMers, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA um, students. So, again, that, that would help with, you know, Latino mm-hmm. residents and would resonate with them. But here's my point of caution. His rollout probably couldn't have gone any worse of yeah. the overall Douglas plan. Yeah, tell us what you can about that, because you're absolutely right. Well, um, let's see, where do we start? Well, <laughs> he and his Douglas plan is comprehensive. This The college affordability is just one part of it. Right. But the Douglas plan is kind of like Buttigieg's plan for, like, how he wants to dismantle racist systems and, and combat racism. Um, But when he rolled it out, he insinuated that there were like 400 people, 400 black South Carolina, Carolinians, I guess, who had signed on, Carolinians, who had signed on to support the Douglas plan. Well, when some journalists started looking, they found out that, number one, not all of those people were black. And um, not all of those people endorsed the plan. And And there was... I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And Tia, didn't he also on his website, he listed himself um, with uh, um, a person of color looking photograph. a, a photograph well, was a and it was, it was a stock image. It was from yes. Kenya. And the person yes. from Kenya said, what is this about and why is my image being used? I'm not even an American. Yes. And a I, stock image from Kenya was another kind of blunder in this rollout. Oof. And so Tia, if, just one question is just as a top as a, as a campaign topic. Uh, how does how does how does the HBCU issue resonate among African African American voters? Do you think? I mean, I think it resonates a lot because, as you guys know, when you go back generations, HBCUs were the only way Black people in America could get higher education. University of Georgia was not letting them in until you know until after 60s, the civil right, rights, yeah. you know, and and even after then, you had an era where yeah, you could go, but life wasn't life wasn't a lot of fun being one of the few African Americans on a college campus, on a you know predominantly white college campus. And quite frankly, there are still issues on campuses across the country today that we hear about. So HBCUs remain relevant to the Black experience. I'm a graduate of an HBCU. Where, oh, so Florida, 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 Florida A&M, right? A&M, All right. That's right. All right. So, so <laughs> Tia, but you know, does he really distinguish himself from even Donald Trump, who's actually increased funding for HBCUs? So that doesn't really distinguish him. What would distinguish Buttigieg if he actually did something about the problem that he has in South Bend, where 26 percent of South Bend residents are African-American, yet he's only been able to actually decrease the number, the percentage of African-American police officers? He's got a major problem there and the people are not happy. Okay, let's I want to move on. Thank you for all of that, because it's important. I want to move on and talk about a couple other candidates. Um, before we have to take a break. So, uh, Jen Jordan, uh, I'm going to skip over the event I would most like to be at if I were able to. That would be Andrew Yang, who's in town today and who's playing basketball with Dominique Wilkins, Wilkins at <laughs> Dominique's house in Conyers. I want to be at that event, but it's probably more likely that serious journalists will be covering Amy Klobuchar who comes into town to talk about an issue that's very close to many Democrats uh, in Georgia, and that's the whole issue of uh, voting rights, and she's rolling out an agenda, which includes, among other things, 
She would require states to use paper ballots. She would uh, uh, ban foreign nationals from buying election ads, a shot at what's been going on with uh, social media and and, uh, certainly uh, people advocating for uh, Trump on social media sites. Um, She would stop uh, states from purging voter rolls if just on the basis of people not voting in previous elections. She has a number of issues. You know, this is exactly the kind of issue we imagined that a candidate would want to take up a number of candidates when they come to town. And certainly the national media is going to showcase as they do their advanced stories here. Well, and, and also you have to remember Georgia is the home of Stacey Abrams. Yeah. And if you look at all of the events kind of holistically that are going on, I mean, one thing comes across pretty clearly is that there is a focus on kind of voting rights and, and trying to stop voter suppression. So if I'm A.B. Klobuchar and I'm coming to Georgia and I want to get attention, <laughs> you know, and especially maybe try to get some of the Abrams supporters on my side, what do you think I'm going to focus on? I'm going to focus on and, rolling out right, my plan. And, and you can't you can't ignore the fact that uh, that Joe Biden has a a a big hold on African-American voters right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we're going to watch how how that event unfolds. But, Jim, that certainly is one of the things if you were coming in from today from The Washington Post to file an advance piece for Wednesday morning's paper for tomorrow, whatever, um, that's one of the things you'd focus on. I, I think you'd focus on 481 on the bill that all but outlaws abortion, right? These are the kinds of things, if you're looking at the landscape of Georgia politics going into the debate, you'd want to talk yeah, about. Yeah, if you're trying, to, if you're trying to, to, to write a forecast for 2020, that's the weather that you're, you're, you're going to be writing about. Uh, and I, I do have a question for, for, for Jen. We, we got into this a little bit on Friday about 481. The, this is the, 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 the so-called heartbeat bill, uh, uh, abortion bill. Okay, it's been put in abeyance by a federal judge. That happened in uh, late September, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, how does that come back as an issue? Does it, does it require a, a, a court hearing and trial? Yeah. So um, it's my understanding that at the beginning of the year, and it may even happen during session, which should be interesting, um, there'll be a trial on HB 481. The um, government, um, the state chose not to appeal the preliminary ruling um, by um, Judge Jones. And so now they're doing some limited discovery. And then, um, you know, they're going to have to be ready to go and to tee it up. And so my guess is that a decision from the judge, a final decision, will come out probably during the legislative session. So that's how it'll come up again in terms of kind of uh, the press and getting the public's attention. And then it'll go straight into the hopper, the appeals process. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. We're a little late to get to that. And when we come back, Tia, I want to turn to you to start us off in the next segment uh, with a conversation about what President Obama said Friday night about the candidates in this race and what impact we think it could have on the debate on Wednesday. Let's do that right after we pause for a couple of minutes. This is Political Rewind. Time to clean up the garage? Start with that vehicle you no longer need and donate it to this station. It's easy. Pickup is free. It could be worth hundreds of dollars in support, and you could even get a tax deduction. Get the process started today. Give us a call to learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. And thanks very much for your support. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. Key players in the Ukraine affair have given the first round of public testimony. Now more former and current government officials tell their story for Congress and all of America to hear. This is a sham and uh, shouldn't be allowed. I do believe the truth will set us free. Join NPR for continuing special coverage of the public hearings of the House impeachment inquiry from NPR News. Join us for NPR's special live coverage of the impeachment hearing tomorrow morning starting at 9 here on GPB. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Leo Smith, Jen Jordan, Jim Galloway in the studio. Tia Mitchell is with us. Uh, she's the new AJC reporter in Washington. Hey, Tia, by the way, just we should really say congratulations and say, Absolutely. are you really excited about what a time to be going up there? 
It's so exciting. I am very excited, and thank you so much. Um, it's a lot to learn. I've never worked in D.C. before, so I'm meeting so many new people and learning so many new things and getting lost in the Capitol, but it's a very exciting time to be a reporter. Are you all, are you still over there? You know, I have I used to work that bureau up there. Are you all still at four, right across from the Capitol at 400 North Capitol? Is that the offices you're in kind right of. now? Cox does have an office yeah. there, but we um, have a permanent desk in the press gallery. Oh, so. okay. Ooh, very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to make a quick announcement while we're at it, and then we'll get back to the conversation about issues. Um, because tomorrow, Wednesday, and Thursday, we have so much in the way of hearings. I want to tell you a little bit about how we're handling that here at GPB Radio. Tomorrow, we are going to carry through the day the NPR coverage of the hearings. You will hear the impeachment hearings on the air tomorrow. You will also hear them on the radio on Thursday. On Wednesday, because it's the same day as the Democratic debate, which really becomes a terribly important issue for us here in Georgia, we're going to have our regular scheduled programs. What that means is we won't be on the air tomorrow, but on Tuesday we will be live at 2 o'clock. We're going to be over at Tyler Perry Studios. We're going to do a two—I'm sorry, Wednesday— we're going to do a two-hour show on Wednesday leading up to the debate, and we're going to hand it off to Ricky Bevington, who will do All Things Considered from Tyler Perry Studios as well. And then Thursday again, the impeachment hearing. So I'll repeat that again later in the show, but just don't look for us tomorrow uh, or Thursday, but we're excited about Wednesday. All right, all that said, uh, Tia... Barack Obama did an event Friday night, which you pointed out to me before the show. I didn't realize Stacey Abrams had been a part of, but it shouldn't surprise me that she was, in which he essentially said to candidates, caution them how. Well, it was it was a quote unquote fireside chat where Stacey Abrams interviewed President Obama at the Democracy Alliance conference, which is basically like super rich people who have money to spend and like to give it to Democratic candidates. They get together a couple times a year and talk about it. And um, so um, she, at one point, because there's a lot of angst, particularly amongst the Democratic voter class, that there are a lot of candidates. And so he addressed that angst initially and said, you know, at this point, it's not a big deal. I had a crowded primary. The Republicans had a crowded primary in 2016. He basically was like, chill out. Um, support who you like. And then when we get to one person, support that person. That's basically what he told them. But he said, I do want to caution you on this one thing. And he said that he feels that some, the activist arm of the party, if you will, is pushing for um, things to happen, pushing candidates farther to the left than the general electorate will be comfortable with. Yeah, he essentially he, said slow down, didn't he, basically? Yeah. He said don't tear it down. You know, incremental changes are what voters want. They don't want systems to be torn down. They don't want revolution. So yeah, the, the imp improvement rather than revolution, and, and Jim was his phrase. I, I think, Tia, I'm correct. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, but, but Jim, he didn't, for instance, so he didn't, for instance, single out Elizabeth Warren, Medicare no. for all, $30 trillion, right. throw out everybody's private he health insurance. He didn't, but he did mention certain yes. topics. He right. mentioned immigration. He mentioned health care. He mentioned climate change. So he did not talk about any specific candidate, but he said these are the issues where we're seeing candidates being pushed in a way that he thinks they're leaving voters behind. But I think not everyone agrees with him. And there is, you know, again, we're talking about a primary. And I think what he's saying is, without saying it and in as many words, if you read between the lines, it seems that he's worried that, you know, a candidate will be nominated to go against Trump that may be perceived as so far left that those crucial independent voters may not feel comfortable voting for that candidate. So, so I, Jim, I, I don't I doubt that President Obama uh, chose Friday night because he knew there'd be another debate on Wednesday, but who knows, maybe. Uh, but it, to some extent, his words can't help but, but give the candidates pause for how they frame their arguments uh, Wednesday right. and night. Right, and I think he's going to be – Tia, do I have the schedule right? He's, he, Obama he's here is going Wednesday to be, morning. He's going to be here Wednesday morning yeah. and yeah. probably will reemphasize that, 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 that argument. So, Jen – 
How do you look when you hear Elizabeth Warren talk about her Medicare for all, Bernie Sanders talk about his Medicare for all? Do you worry that the nomination, that the reelection of Trump could be aided by that kind of liberal posture? Do you think, in fact, there are many Americans who want where – where do you come down on all that? Look, I think that's part of the good thing about having so many people on the stage right now and so many people with different plans that go from tweaking um, ACA and, and trying to reinforce it to kind of a Medicare for all thing. That's the whole point. It's like put the plans out there, see what actually makes sense, see what people like, um, and then that's what's going to come out of the process. But I will say that um, I'm a big believer in trying to appeal practically to regular voters. I think so many times we kind of talk about things from a theoretical place as opposed to what's going on with with this single mom down in South Georgia and how is she handling life and how can we help her out? And to be quite frank, in terms of the whole, you know, let's just tear it down and redo it, I think people are worn out in terms of the instability that people have been feeling because of the Trump administration. And I think folks just want things to get boring and stable <laughs> and let's just be incremental about it, you know, as opposed to just kind of wiping, you know, the slate clean and starting all over. Yeah, I suspect that President Obama is doing something a little bit more um, strategic here that might even be in favor of his friend, Devil Patrick, because the fact is that Stacey Abrams is interviewing him and Stacey herself said, I am absolutely willing to run as a leftist in Georgia. And she embraced that 100 percent. So I almost feel like Donald Trump is sort of like creating space for Devil Patrick, a moderate. You mean to President Obama, not President Donald Ob- Trump. President Obama yeah. um, is creating space for his friend to have a chance at presenting uh, a moderate platform. I, and, uh, you know, Jim, I, Duval Patrick's got such a long shot, and I'm not sure that I <laughs> right. think and, Obama's going to invest and, a whole and, and, lot in <laughs> and, and look, I will. I will tell you. If I've been, it's been my job to watch Abrams pretty closely, and yes, her rhetoric goes in that direction. Uh, uh, it has gone that depending on the audience. But if you look at what she does, uh, she's a she's a pretty she is she is she is very much a center left yes. candidate. Yes, I would yes. agree with that in terms of her to. plans and. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what was always interesting about watching her on the trail is that, you know, she could, you know, she could give one heck of a speech, man. Um, but then you looked at her proposals and they really were kind of middle of the road, um, very moderate um, in terms of, of Democrats. Um, so there's some concern. No, concern would be the, the wrong word. Uh, Jim, there's been some writing over the weekend that for several candidates who are on the stage Wednesday night, they're really down. This could be their final debate. Uh, Kamala Harris is running out of money. She has gotten to the point where her numbers nationally are low, and so she's invested her entire campaign now in Iowa. But if you look at the latest polling, CNN polling at least, hasn't moved the needle. Uh, so, so there's some question about whether after she does this debate, there'll be a campaign left. But by the time the sixth debate happens, Cory Booker continues to struggle to get any headwind. Do you imagine that this could be the last debate for a number of the people who will be on that stage? Well, I, I think a whole lot of Democrats are hoping so. Yeah. I mean, I think they would love to see a stage with no more than five people. You know, and that's, a, that's a, I mean, in the old days, that would be a crowd. That would be a crowd. Now it's now it's now it's something we think we can handle because people people get more than thirty seconds to talk. Is Tia still with us, or is she? Yeah, yeah no, Tia's there. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. You can finish. I was going to say I'm worried about the debate on Wednesday because it's only two hours and it's ten people. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you something else, Tia. What you're picking up on? You know, it's also interesting to me that you come to Atlanta. You know, sort of the black Hollywood mecca of the United States, the civil rights mecca of the United States. And pretty much all your moderators are Caucasian women. And I understand that the Democrats are really trying to appeal to white suburban women. But, boy, I, that's pretty stark. Well, one of the moderators yeah. is African-American. Yeah. Well, she's, she's, she's mixed race. And yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, um, 
Yeah, but I mean, the experience of the urban ethnic focused person is just not there. I mean, I think that, first of all, we don't, you don't need white, I mean, you don't need black moderators to make sure questions are asked that speak to the diversity of the American electorate. I mean, so, but experientially, um, experientially. Yeah, uh, and again, experientially, the the there is diversity amongst the moderators, but the question to me, mo- even more important than that, because you could have a black moderator and still not ask questions that speak to the black experience. Yeah, so I, you need both. So I, I think we need to see what questions are asked and are they asking questions knowing the setting of the debate? Are the questions being asked that speaks to the fact that, you know, this is the cradle of the civil rights movement. This is a place where immigrants are flocking and things like that. Um, we've talked about this before, Jim, but one of the things is uh, that, yes, there's a, the diver- there's diversity among the women, but maybe more important is there's four women moderators, which suggests that we may get some questions and a frame of reference that will be different from any of the debates before. We've had other debates that were co-moderated by two women, but in this cycle, we're starting afresh. Yeah, and that may be led by the 481 stuff, too. They think they're coming to Georgia um, because, you know, that may have been kind of where what they were thinking when they were kind of putting the group together. Um, and now that 481's kind of on ice in terms of the, the federal ruling, you know, we're really not talking about all that stuff. I mean, with all of these various events, you don't see anything that focuses on on reproductive rights. No, and as, look, Leo, as far as as the as the the kind of the cultural integrity, I think the fact that you're going to be on the Oprah Winfrey yeah. stra- stage in Tyler Perry's house, <laughs> I I think that's a, that's a that's a pretty firm statement, right? I there. mean, that's that's curtains. That's you know, that's that's stagecraft. That's not experience. All right, well, we're gonna, we'll, watch, we'll watch how it unfolds. Uh, let's do this. Let's get to our, our final uh, break of the show. Hey, Tia, uh, I, told, I told you that I know how busy you all are uh, right now with all this stuff. I told you that if you need to move on at this point before we go to the final segment, you can. But if you want to stay with us, we'd love to have you. Just let me know what you'd like to do. I'll stick around. Terrific. I'm glad. Uh, that's the right answer. Thank you for that. We'll be right back. My name is Lauren Lynn, and I'm the Associate Director of Marketing for Georgia Farm Bureau. Georgia Farm Bureau is the voice of Georgia farmers, and we work earnestly to support the state's leading industry, agriculture. We underwrite with GPB. What I like about the programming is that it reaches a diverse audience, and it enables individuals or organizations the opportunity to share their messaging across the state. To find out more about becoming a corporate sponsor, email sponsorship at gpb.org. On the next Fresh Air... You ain't no general. You ain't no copper. You, you ain't the president. You ain't my father. I'm sick of you acting like you is. Robert Pattinson. He stars in the new film The Lighthouse, playing an apprentice to a lighthouse keeper. Pattinson became a teenage heartthrob for his role as a vampire in the Twilight films. Join us. It's this afternoon at 3 on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org. Uh, there have been some breaking news stories uh, that uh, impact uh, the impeachment uh, hearings in Washington. Jim, we all just noticed that another story that we don't have much information on yet, I'll just mention it briefly, but apparently President Trump in the last few minutes has uh, turned his back on what has been accepted international uh, reality uh, for many, many years. He now is saying that the settlements in Israel are not illegal and uh, essentially is paving the way for if a more conservative government uh, takes place, if the Knesset becomes more conservative. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the prime minister in no, Israel. No, it's, but it's, it's, it's one, more, one more move toward a one-state solution. Exactly. It, it really does put a nail in the coffin of this notion that there could be a, two, uh, a, a two-state solution. Um, but it also reminds us, Jim, that President Trump sees – his support for Israel as being crucial. We talk a lot about Trump now wants to reach out to African-American voters, but he has made it clear in every move from uh, moving the uh, embassy uh, to Jerusalem, supporting Benjamin Netanyahu openly during elections. Now this in terms of the settlements, he said before he thought that Israel should be allowed to expand its territory. He really sees this as how he wins the Jewish vote. 
and the Jewish vote isn't quite that single-minded. No, no, but and I will tell you, but but it's 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 the issue is just extremely, extremely to, uh, important to to white conservative conservative evangelicals. That's the right. That's and exactly that's where, right. That's that's where this is headed. And why is it? Tell explain that. Well, this is if you if you are into your your theology, if you if if you grew up Southern Baptist or Pentecostal, uh, and you know the Book of Revelation, uh, you you know that that. That is Israel is the trigger. That's right. Every, Israel has to be returned to the Jewish people in its entirety uh, before the Messiah is going uh, to return. Uh, and the end of the world, by the way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jen, yeah. Jen Jordan is just sort of shaking her head in dismay. So, but I think what we know is he tends to do these big announcements and these big policy policy shifts when he's wanting to change the conversation um, and change the focus. And, and tomorrow's going to be a rough day. It's going to be a rough yeah. day. Yeah. And so he doesn't want everybody focusing on that. He wants folks focusing on this bright, uh, shiny thing. Another big story that broke today, and Tia, I'm not sure this too, we're just sort of learning more and more about, but I think the Washington Post was the first uh, organization to report this. Um it appears that the House of Representatives, we know that the House Democrats have been in court uh, trying to get access to the to the grand jury uh, testimony that went into Robert Mueller's investigation of Russian interference with the elections. Um, we now know that the House is investigating whether President Trump actually lied to former special counsel Robert Mueller and, and the reason that this becomes more pertinent than it was before, even more pertinent, is that the other day when Roger Stone was convicted, testimony and evidence that is his trial made it fairly clear that Trump may have given written replies to Mueller. We all remember that he uh, would, would not testify in person. He gave written answers to Mueller's questions. He may have lied about his knowledge of the 2016 campaign's understanding of the WikiLeaks that were going to be breaking with Hillary Clinton's emails. So here's, here's potentially, Tia, another branch of the impeachment inquiry mm -hmm. that uh, could prove problematic for the Trump administration. Right. And that's what it says to me is that, you know, the House is trying to be comprehensive in its impeachment inquiry so that if they decide to draft articles of impeachment, and at this point it seems all but certain that the House will, and um, if and when they draft articles of impeachment, they want it to be comprehensive and they want it to be as airtight as possible because the other thing that the House knows is going to happen, because it's already happening, is that, you know, Republicans who don't support the impeachment inquiry are really – their message all along has been there's nothing there. Democrats are making, you know, looking looking for reasons to remove the president from office, and, and there's no nothing there to say he did anything wrong. And so it just looks like the House is really trying to build its case by, you know, un turning over every stone. Jen, let me um, ask you about impeachment, if I may. Um, obviously, Democrats have been of mixed minds, have had for a while now, even Speaker Pelosi for quite a long time didn't want to launch this impeachment inquiry. She said for a long time it had to be bipartisan. That didn't turn out to be the case, and the Ukraine matter really accelerated it. Are you at all uncomfortable as a Democratic elected official about the fact that this impeachment inquiry is now going full speed? Does it does it give you any pause at all and make you a, a little concerned about how you're or how, how are your constituents reacting? It doesn't give me any concern. I mean, and at the end of the day, uh, to be quite frank, I mean, the, the evidence that I've seen and as a lawyer, mm -hmm. um, the testimony and um, kind of the back and forth. I mean, it's it's clear to me. I mean, look, the House has grounds um, to draft fairly strong articles of impeachment. The question is if they move forward and then at the end of the day, what's going to happen in the Senate? And that's much more of a political call. But as as for me, you know, I don't have a problem with it. Procedurally, and Bill, you've got experience of having been able to watch the Nixon, Nixon hearings. 
<laughs> Not me. <laughs> Thanks, Leo. So, so tell me, sir, um, how did it go that when you're in the Senate hearings, are you not, I mean, I would imagine Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren, how do they campaign when well, they that's can't. going on? Well, they can't, Jim. And that's, in fact, we are hearing lately that that's Mitch McConnell's plan. He's going to try to drag out the trial, should it come to that, so that he pins them down in the Senate. I think you have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And Amy Klobuchar. And Amy Klobuchar saying, throw me into that briar patch, please. Right, right. Because because they will be front and center. And to tell you the truth, I think think Senate Republicans are realizing very, very slowly, but I think they're coming to grips with the problem that this poses for them. For the Joni Ertz in Iowa, for Susan Collins in Maine, uh, for Cory Gardner in in Colorado, uh, even even I mean uh, 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 North Carolina. Right. There's uh, there are plenty of vulnerability. If 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 the House Republic uh, House Democrats put together a pretty airtight case, and it's presented in that airtight fashion on the floor of the Senate in front of the the the, the John Roberts of the, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, I think I, I think the the burden falls on them. Then Leo is right. I'm the only one really old enough to have watched the Nixon impeachment hearing. Oh, no, you no. well, you're close. You're close to. Then you will recall what I do, which is that of course Republicans stood staunchly behind President Nixon for quite a long time. The Watergate. Uh, 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 investigation played out over months and months. And, of course, initially in the pages of the Washington Post and eventually the New York Times as well. And even as it un- unfurled, Republicans stood by Nixon in the same way that right now Republicans are standing by President Trump. But at a certain point, especially when, when, after Don, John tapes, Dean's testimony and the then tapes the tapes, came out. it all broke. And I think for people... And Tia, I'll give you a shot at this because you're going to be up there. You'll end up having to cover this. I think for people who are convinced there is no way that Republicans are going to break ranks, they're forgetting the lesson of what happened with Richard Nixon if Democrats produce a strong enough uh, case and there is a smoking gun. I'm not sure it. we can be convinced that there's no way the Senate won't if not actually convict him, that there won't be any number of Republicans who do break, break ranks. And you'll see it all, Tia. Right. I, I, and I, I think there will also be those behind-the-scenes conversations about, is it worth it? Um, of course, that's, just, that's still premature because it really depends on what the articles of impeachment say and what evidence the House eventually says. These are the laws, we, you know, these are the tenets of presidency that we think were broken, and here's why we think they're broken. And if that case becomes strong, if, you know, there, there may not be as black and white of a smoking gun as what Nixon had, where, you know, we had tapes, right. and, and, and it was pretty clear that, you know, can't be breaking into your opponent's office. But if, if, if or covering up that you yeah, broke or covering in. up said break in. Right. You know, it might not be that dramatic, but if, if it's some solid evidence then then the discussion becomes right. come on Trump, spare us. I gotta I gotta interrupt you because we are completely out of time. Uh so Tia Mitchell, thank you. Uh, Leo Smith, Jen Jordan, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You as well, of course Galloway. Um uh, Friday, we'll talk more about what happened at the debate. Again, we will be not on the air. We won't be on the air tomorrow because we'll bring you the impeachment hearings. And then Wednesday, two hours starting at 2 o'clock from Tyler Perry Studios as the Democrats get set to debate. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all again on Wednesday.